All right, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and uh, open it to Genesis 22. We are ending today a four-month series that we have been doing on the life of Abraham in the Old Testament, uh, in the book of Genesis. Abraham, as we've been seeing, is a man like all of us, full of successes, full of absolute flops, Uh, times where he is living in light of the grace of the gospel and times where he is living in fear and doubt if God could really be that good. And so as we've been following this man's story, we've been asking ourselves, what does a life of love toward God look like? What Uh, When the promises of the gospel become real to us, when the grace of God becomes alive to us, when Jesus becomes everything to us, everything to us, how do we live a life of love to him who has loved us so? And so the passage that we're going to end this series on today answers that question in some of the most vivid storytelling there has been known to humanity. In fact, one commentator on this passage says, no other story in Genesis, indeed in the whole Old Testament, can match its haunting beauty and theological depth. And so follow with me as I read Genesis 22, 1 through 19, as we let it guide us today to the beauty and to the depth of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 1, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will show you. So early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in a distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey While I and the boy go over there, we will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, he placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And the two of them went on together. And as they did, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered him, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there, arranged the wood on it, He bound his son Isaac and laid him 
on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out with his hand and took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. So Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed there in Beersheba. Uh, it's a test, Genesis 22. It, it is one giant test. We, we have all endured more tests than we care to count. Some of us uh, recently, uh, when I was in college, um, I, I actually was uh, a little intimidated by the thought of becoming a pastor, and so I ran the other direction from it. And as I was graduating college, uh, almost accepted a job with the Secret Service. Now, before you raise your eyebrows, I guarantee you, they would have given me the littlest responsibility as possible, right? I was basically interviewing to guard a speed bump somewhere in the Capitol uh, that you couldn't mess up even if you tried. But um, the interesting thing, the way you get a job in the Secret Service, it's not that complicated. It's just test. They, they give you an endless amount of tests, knowledge, psychological, interpersonal, temperament, fitness, decision-making, no rock in your life is left unturned by a multiple answer test, and then at the end of it, they hook you up to a polygraph to test what you've been lying about in the midst of all of it. Pass the test, you're in. That's all it takes. Well, what is a test? It's a discovery of what remains unseen or unknown. God comes to Abraham in Genesis 22. And for the first, for the only time in the Bible, it says in verse 1, God tests someone. And it was the biggest test of Abraham's life. In fact, everything we've read in the last 10 chapters has been preparing him for this moment. So what's God trying to discover in Abraham? What does Abraham want more? God's things or God? 
The gifts or the giver? The promises of the gospel or the person of the gospel? If God took everything away that he's given to Abraham, can Abraham's faith sustain him? Because his greatest longing was never for what God could give him, but simply for being with God himself. So what the passage is trying to discover in us this morning. Are we comfortable and satisfied with a life where God blesses us but doesn't bother with us? Where he fulfills our American dream and leaves us alone? Or is our greatest longing this morning enjoying God for nothing more than who he is because Jesus and Jesus alone has become enough for us? It's a test. So what's it going to discover in you? Three things. Three things we're going to look at in Genesis 22 this morning. The test, the result, and the fulfillment. So first, the test. God comes and tests Abraham when he is actually at the peak of his success. In Genesis, uh, in chapter 22, God against all human odds, does the unthinkable. The son that God has pledged to Abraham, the son through whom God is going to fulfill his promises to a hundred-year-old man who has left everything behind for God. The miracle boy is finally born. Isaac's growing up. He's maybe 12 at the time of this passage. Abraham's living in the land that God has promised to him. He is cozy and comfortable. Things are going great. And in three commands, it all falls apart. God says in verse 2, Take your son, go to Moriah, sacrifice him there. Now, God is, he is asking Abraham to give up everything right here, everything. Emotionally, the loss would be unbearable for Abraham. Do you notice God doesn't say, take Isaac with you. He says, take your son, your only son, the one whom you love. Emotionally, it'd be unbearable. Culturally, it'd be disastrous. Uh, in ancient society, the family meant more than the individual. And the role of the head of the house was to ensure the success of his family after him. And without an heir, without a son to pass the family wealth on to, then the, the wealth of the family would be lost to just the greater community. But spiritually, what God is asking him to do here would be catastrophic. Isaac was the vehicle through which God was going to kiss a sin-cursed world. If Isaac dies on that altar, God's promises die with him. And you and me live out the rest of our days in endless suffering and pain. God is asking Abraham to put everything on that altar. Everything. It's not supposed to be easy to read. It's written to stir up this inner conflict in us. We're supposed to squirm as we hear it. Why would God do this? 
God's testing Abraham to discover what his deepest treasure is. What has captured the greatest desire of Abraham's heart? What does he love most? God or the things that God can give him? It's the same thing that happens with Job. Job in the Old Testament, he is, uh, he is one of the richest people in the world. And one day, God comes and says to Satan, have you seen Job? There is nobody like Job. Nobody on the face of the earth loves me like this man does. And Satan says, are you that gullible, God? Of course he loves you. You've made it easy for him. You gave him everything he could ever want. Come on, seriously, can you be that simply-minded, God? Take it all away from him and he'll curse you. You know, what is it that you most need in life to be happy? What are you most longing for today? Is it a spouse that gets you? Is it kids that praise you? Is it people who recognize you? Is it a career that makes you feel on top? Is it your political party winning the culture war? What, what is it that you feel like until you really have life is not all it's built to be? And if you lost, life would feel pointless. That's what God's asking Abraham. God does the unthinkable and tells Abraham to put Isaac on the altar so God can see if he's really just a means to an end to Abraham. If Abraham's really just in it because God's made it worthwhile for him. God's saying, Abraham, I've made you successful. I promised you the world. But what I want to know is can you say like Asaph in Psalm 73, though my heart and flesh may fail, God, you are my portion, my treasure forever. God wants to know, Abraham, am I your treasure? Is my love for you better than life itself? Am I what makes your heart leap? Am I the one you can't get off of your mind? Because you are to me. God is asking us this morning, am I your treasure? Or have you gotten to a place where now you're just in it for what I can give you? For me, fulfilling your American dream. You know, God could not ask you a more caring question than that. Because a faith that's more concerned with with God making us cozy and comfortable, that loves what he can give us more than who he is for us, that type of faith will only end up cynical, worn out, beat up, and exhausted by the brokenness and suffering that you've experienced in here. Is he your treasure? Because if you are in Christ this morning, you're his right now.
So the test, second, the result. Abraham goes on the long three-day journey to Moriah. He climbs up the mountain and gets ready to do the unthinkable. Now, to be clear, the, the Bible uniformly condemns child sacrifice, and Abraham himself, even in verse 8, seems confident that him and Isaac are walking out of this together. He doesn't know how, but he seems pretty sure that God's going to provide something for him. They reach the top of the mountain. He ties up Isaac, lays him on the wood, grabs the knife, and is about to plunge it into his son and the promises of God when an angel of the Lord calls out from heaven, Abraham, no, Abraham, don't lay a hand on him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your one and only son. Uh, the angel reveals at this point what Abraham was actually clueless about. It's all a test. We knew it. The readers knew it. Abraham didn't. It, this was real life for him. And the test was to see if Abraham fears God. Now, when the Bible talks about fearing God, it's actually not talking about this cowering, anxious dread at the thought of God. Now, Psalm 33 puts it this way, the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, who hope in his unfailing love. You hear the connection? Those who fear the Lord are those who hope in his unfailing love for them. Meaning to fear the Lord in the Old Testament isn't this cowering, uh, if I don't get it all right, he's going to give me the axe dread. No, it is a loving, joyful awe and wonder at God's greatness and his grace. Abraham doing the unthinkable, something that, I mean, undoubtedly, he could probably himself barely watch. Knife in hand, ready to give up his son and the promises of the gospel with him, is in this moment saying, God, even those aren't more beautiful to you than me. I am so caught up in the wonder of your greatness and grace. You are everything that I want. I am completely yours. But here's the thing. God already knew that. When the angel says in verse 12, now I know that you fear God, it's not as if that was ever a question mark for God. God knows and sees every part of us. God wasn't testing Abraham to discover something unknown in the heart of Abraham. No, God was testing Abraham so Abraham, so we, could discover something unknown about the heart of God. In verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time. And he says, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you've done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. 
Your descendants will take possessions of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Um, When I was in graduate school, I worked at a coffee roaster, one of my favorite jobs I've ever had. And uh, when you work at a coffee roaster, you are constantly tasting coffee. Every day, multiple tastings going on. And like any profession, there's all sorts of insider lingo and uh, stuff that they have. And so one of the terms that they use when you're tasting coffee uh, is called opening up. Essentially what that means is this. When you take a sip of coffee right after it's brewed, here's what you taste that first sip. Hot. That's pretty much it. That's all you get. I, I mean, you might be able to distinguish this is coffee, you know, and not something else, but but all you really get is the heat of it. But as the coffee cools, it opens up, as they put it, so that now you can start to to taste and distinguish and enjoy all the different nuances, all the different flavors that at first sip you were completely unaware of. The nature of the cup stays the same. Your enjoyment of it gets better and better and better. Well, verses 15 through 18 are the promises of the gospel opening up. Everything in these verses, God's already promised to Abraham before. There's nothing new, just better. God says your descendants won't just be like the stars in the sky, they'll be like the sand on the shore. You won't just live in the land I'm promising you. You'll conquer it. You'll own it. Not only through you, Abraham, but through your family that will come off after you. Will all the nations of the earth be blessed? In other words, God's saying, Abraham, if if you thought the promises of the gospel were good, when you first heard them back in chapter 12, that was the first sip. They're just starting to open up. Have a taste of them now. This right here is the whole point of the test, the whole point of it. God wants to astound Abraham with a wonder-producing assurance of his love for him. God is trying in this moment to relocate everything in this man's life into his promises in the gospel that the longer you linger in, the sweeter and sweeter and sweeter they become the savor of grace. So when's the last time you've been shocked at what God's promised you in the gospel? When is the last time someone has literally had to convince you of his plans for grace for you in Jesus because they seemed too good to be true? Genesis 22 is saying God's desire for your life right now, is that he wants to shock you. He wants to knock you over with his desire for you in Jesus so that you'll say even more, I am completely yours. The test, the result, lastly then, the fulfillment. Every character in this story Every character in it, at some level, is incomplete and waiting uh, for who Abraham himself was waiting for. 
In John chapter 8, Jesus says that Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing his day, and that he actually did see it, and when he did, he was glad. If you want God to become the treasure of your heart this morning, you need to see the one who Abraham saw. You need to see Jesus, who fulfills Abraham's test. You see, Jesus is the greater Isaac in this story. Jesus is the young man who carried uphill the wood on which he would die. Jesus is the son who trusted his father's good intentions, praying before his death, not my will but yours be done. Jesus is the boy who was silent before he was sacrificed. But as Isaiah 53 says, like a lamb who was led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. Jesus is the one who allowed himself to be bound to the altar, saying, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own. Who on the cross didn't ask, Father, where's the lamb? But Father, where are you? Jesus is the greater Isaac, for whom there would be no ram caught in the bushes, because while Abraham's son of promise could not die, God's son of promise must die. Because God's plans of grace was never for Abraham to give up Isaac for his sin, but for God to give up his one and only son. His beloved in whom he's well pleased, the treasure of his heart, the object of his affection, the even more shocking, heart-wrenching sacrifice of God's eternal son for your sin also, God could have you because in the gospel, you're his treasure. He says, I want you just for you, not for what you can give me, not for what I can get out of the relationship, but in Christ, knowing full well the depths of your sin, he is desiring you right now. Jesus is the greater Isaac, and he's the greater ram who God provided, who takes the place of another, who exhausts the judgment someone else should have faced who's laid on the altar we should have been on, who dies, not as our second chance, not as our do-over, but as our substitute. You know, in the Bible, love is not just a feeling, it's an action, and there could be no greater act of love than substitution, than Jesus on the cross, placing on himself our past that haunts us, our shame that disgraces us, our sin that condemns us, who was crucified to gladly accept everything that could damn us, everything that could disqualify us, everything that could accuse us on the cross by faith. It is all laid on him, not you, and there it died with him. And so if God can look at Abraham's sacrifice being willing even to offer up his own son and say, Abraham, Abraham, now I know you love me. How much more can we look at the cross 
and see God being willing to give up his own son in our place and say, now I know that you love me. When you see Jesus completing the story, fulfilling the test, it is then and only then that God will become enough for you. That then we can say like the psalmist, not though my heart and flesh may fail, but when my heart and flesh may fail. God, you are my portion. You are my treasure. It's then that we will finally be able to sacrifice everything for God. It's then that we will finally be willing to sit in the painful, agonizing delay of the fulfillment of all of God's good promises to us because our heart's greatest desire isn't even the promises but the one who's promised them to us. It's then that the love of God will become greater to you than life itself. All because you see in Jesus the greater Isaac, the greater ram, and lastly, the greater Abraham. Jesus is the ultimate man of faith who God tried, who obeyed the command, who endured the long journey, who embraced the cost, who held nothing back, who passed the test so you get the blessing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are so many things that want to steal the prized place of the treasure of our hearts. Only you will satisfy that. Holy Spirit, point us this morning to Jesus, the greater Isaac, who you did not spare but gave up for us, the greater ram who stood in our place condemned for us, and the greater Abraham who passed the test so we get the blessing. Amen.